Okay, now we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That is with episode 541 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We have a loaded show where we are going to break down everything that happened across AEW and NXT over the last week. But the reason many of you are probably listening to this episode is to hear what the Silver King has to say about Tony Khan's latest tweet storm from this week. Don't you worry, we will be addressing that on today's show if the Silver King had to wait 48 hours. You all can wait just a bit longer. We do have a few things to discuss as we get into today's show. So off the top, let me remind you to visit our Twitter profile at Getting Overcast. Check the top tweet. It is a pinned link to a ballot for the Sports Podcast Awards. Getting Over has been nominated for Best Wrestling Podcast, and we would absolutely love it if you can vote for us. So open a window, maybe an incognito window so you can vote as much as you want, but click that link, vote for the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We would love to be the best wrestling podcast of 2023. On that note, of course, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. It's also where you can DM and tweet us questions and comments. We will do our best to read many of those right here on the show. And if you get through a couple times or you feel like you've tweeted or DM'd a few times and you haven't gotten through yet, I promise I read all of them and I will try to put as many fresh names on this show as possible. We have a ton to run through today. As mentioned, NXT, AEW, and what happened on Twitter with Tony Khan. So I think the most natural way to go through this episode is to kick off with NXT. We'll go ahead and cover what Tony had to say on Twitter. And then we'll give you a full breakdown of everything that happened in AEW over the last week, of course, spanning Rampage, Collision, and Dynamite. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to this latest Twitter episode, and it goes beyond what was actually said. So, I mean, as again, as much as I want to give it to you right here off the top of the show, I already had to wait 48 hours. You all can wait 15, 20 more minutes. It's in the show. There are timestamps in the episode description. Don't skip over the first part of the show, but if you really need to or you want to listen to it in parts, you can go ahead and do that. We'll have a timestamp for every single segment that, as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. So with that said, we're going to kick off with NXT. Vengeance Day, still a month out. Obviously, Stand and Deliver, WrestleMania weekend, a few months out. But the building for both, really, is underway. Cody Rhodes voiced over a Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic video package that showed old footage of the original trophy being unveiled. He said, it's not about these teams finishing their stories, but rather starting new ones of their own. I'm just glad he's involved in embracing the stuff with his father. That's great. Carmelo Hayes backstage told Trick Williams they had good news, but Trick was still upset about Melo's involvement last week. Hayes said he only came out to protect him because of Shawn Michaels' tweet about a former NXT champion being there. Melo said his goal is to protect Trick, and since they don't know how long Ilya Dragunov is going to be out, he got them a spot in the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic. Williams wanted to stay locked in with the singles pursuit. Hayes convinced him by saying that he can become a Triple Crown champion, Melo himself, and Trick can become two title trick while staying on top of his game. Trick loved it. They dapped up. This is not really what I expected when I said last week that I hoped they remained together and didn't actually split. But clearly, Ilya is more injured than everyone originally thought. That also better explains why they ran the angle with Ridge Holland and inserting Trick Mellow Gang into the tournament obviously makes it better just because they're talented and charismatic. It is legitimately a loaded field. Though I do wish it went back to 16 teams and not eight. For some reason, WWE just really likes to do eight person or 18 tournaments. And to me, that doesn't really feel like a tournament. It just feels like qualifying matches. I know it technically is a tournament. There's quarterfinals, semifinals, and then a final. But it doesn't come across that way to me. It's not as deep as it could be. And when you have something like the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic and a field that's already as strong as it is, with these eight teams, that's a great opportunity to throw eight other teams in there and they can all lose in the first round. That's fine. But you get more people on the show. You spend more time on it. 
I just wish they had done that. The segment itself hit as usual with Trick being wary of Mello and Mello nevertheless being convincing and charismatic and convincing him to do what he thinks is best for them. It always seems like he has good intentions to start, but obviously at some point, the shroud is taken off and his true intentions are revealed. Uh, Braun Breaker and Baron Corbin fought Gallus in the first quarterfinal. Braun wore his pink gear to differ in contrast from Corbin, who was totally in black. Breaker got the hot tag and went on a wild run at one point, hitting a German suplex fallaway slam of Gallus that was a tad convoluted. Corbin tagged himself in for the finish, but Breaker saved him from an attack with a spear as Corbin hit end of days for the win. They actually got along like in the kayfabe, did a brief hug after the bell, Braun looked incredible here. Corbin's personality completely shone through. And most importantly, this was super entertaining. It was probably the best part of NXT on Tuesday night. I said they were the favorites coming in. And while that may have been obvious, sure, they should not only win the Dusty Cup, but they should win the tag team titles at the end of this. As far as Gallus, I'm just kind of done with them at this point. Like, it's not going to happen. Gallus is not going to happen. And they're just fodder going forward. At least that's what they should be for NXT. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. Gallus was furious over losing backstage when Ridge Holland walked into their area. Joe Coffey stepped to him with Holland pointing out they should be worried about themselves and not him. So the trio stepped to Holland in a threatening manner, but he didn't back down. Not a bad idea. I'd kind of like to see him run through all of them individually, but we'll see what the booking is. Axiom and Nathan Frazier fought Hank and Tank in the other quarterfinal. The power tandem work of Hank and Tank, full display to start. They were decently impressive. The Speedsters hit four straight Tope Suicidas. Frazier hit a Phoenix Splash more than a third of the way into the ring and got the win. Hank wasn't positioned properly for the finisher, but the fact that Frazier got most of it despite that was pretty impressive. They're going to match up with Breaker and Corbin in the semifinals. That should be a great contrast of styles match with the heels just tossing them around in every which way. And obviously Corbin and Breaker are the favorites to come out of that. Idris Anofe pumped up Malik Blade backstage ahead of their match with Trick and Mello next week. Anofe said they could totally turn their careers around by winning. Suddenly, a blonde chick, I don't know who she is, totally new, ran up saying that they can be active or more active than they already are. So they just lifted up their shirts and showed that they have six packs. And she's like, yeah, I guess you necessarily don't need my advice. I completely missed her name, but she's basically doing like a fitness influencer gimmick. I feel like Riddick Moss briefly did something like this. I don't know, eight years ago, but I don't exactly remember. None of it was anything really. It's a new gimmick. It's a new person. We'll see how she does. Dragon Lee showed up with his visa issues officially cleared. Ava was happy to see him back after disposing of Luca Crucifino. He was complaining to her backstage. Lexus immediately came up with a pre-drafted Lexus King, that is, pre-drafted contract, assuming the open challenges for Dragon were still on. Lee signed it right away. My thinking here is that there was a clause in the contract giving King an advantage because Dragon didn't even look at it for more than five seconds, but that never came to fruition. Obafemi backstage didn't really say much when asked if he would cash in the NXT breakout contract sooner or later. King came up saying Femi earned it and would be the next NXT champion, but he noted that he would join him winning the North American title later in the show. And he kind of also insinuated that if he had been in the tournament and there was no, uh, distraction or interference, I should say, in his match, then he probably would have won the contract instead of him. It was kind of surprising that even though he was being a bit of a dick, King was actually supporting and instilling confidence in a babyface. But Lexus was a surprisingly good promo twice in a row here. He's embracing this character. He's starting to find a comfort level with it. I did not have high hopes for him. I still don't necessarily. But if we're grading it on an expectation scale, he's exceeded my expectations so far. It's fair to say. North American Championship match, Dragon Lee against Lexus King. This was the main event. Trey Bearhill tried to interfere early, but got escorted out. King was clunky with some poor timing early, but it quickly got better when Dragon was on offense. Lexus had a nice, I guess, fisherman's arrow, you could call it, only for Dragon to come back with Destino or Operation Dragon, if you prefer, to retain the title in pretty simple fashion. Immediately after the bell, Obafemi walked down with an official and the NXT breakout contract. As soon as it was announced as official of the match, Dragon caught him with a tope suicida. Femi overcame a quick offensive onslaught with that really cool toss slam that he does, but he got caught running with a super kick and a tornado DDT. Femi then countered Destino by popping up Lee into a last ride powerbomb 
to win the North American Championship in just a couple minutes. Surprising first to see King get defeated that easily. Their match was solid once it overcame that strange start. I really don't mind Femi using the contract on this title. They set it up well with King poking him before the match and with Dragunov out indefinitely. It makes kayfabe sense that he would want to strike while the iron was hot, even if it's for the number two title. I'm a bit surprised they had him beat Dragon without him suffering an injury or significant adversity in the first match. He beat Lexus King and was totally fine. He was tired, sure, but he wasn't injured or anything like that. I suppose the idea was to not reduce the impact of Oba taking the title. I guess if he's tired after the match and he's hurt, then it just looks like this huge, powerful guy took advantage of an injured, tired, tiny guy. Instead, he just took advantage of a tiny guy who's a little bit tired. So I I understand probably why they did it. So it worked, I guess, in that degree. But this is strapping a damn rocket to someone. The North American title has been in limbo since Mustafa Ali got fired. So I'd consider this moment to be like the full reset where they are now able to start booking it either as originally planned or at least as planned now. Best of all is that this was unpredictable. And that's what NXT does better than any other product right now. What's interesting is Oba Femi is actually the first WWE NIL signee to win a title. He's only 22 years old. He was on the Alabama track and field team a couple years ago, signed back in 2021 as part of the first ever NIL class. And I saw some pictures after the show. This dude looks incredible with this particular title. Real excited for this run coming up. In terms of the breakout contract being used money in the bank style, I still don't like it. They did it in 2021 with Mello and never looked back. But as I said last week, it simply does not make sense. If anyone should have a contract with that kind of stipulation, it should be the winners of the Iron Survivor Challenge, not neophytes who win a tournament of rookies. That's way too much power to give to someone simply for being the best of the developmental trainees. You know what I'm saying? I really hope they change this rule starting next year. Uh, The tag team championship match was on the show. D'Angelo family against Out the Mud. There was a really cool sliding catch inverted F5 onto the ring apron by OTM. Tony got the hot tag, really showcased his strength against the bigger guys. There was a 2.9 kick out after some type of tandem backslam move. Then OTM hit the assisted catch power slam for another near fall. Stax took the tope hip toss and they hit bada boom, bada bing for a broken fall. Adriana Rizzo stopped scripts from interfering, pushing him off the rope and into his guys with Tony hitting the fisherman suplex bomb to retain the title. So this was booked and laid out to be a good match. But OTM is so green that it was just consistently clunky for two big, strong guys they really don't seem to be that athletic from a wrestling sense. They just need a lot more work to get to the point where you can see them as believable challengers or one-day champions. They also don't have much charisma in the ring, even though they have a lot of charisma out of the ring. And if you do have charisma in the ring, that can cover up for some shortcomings. D'Angelo family, they look pretty good. Having developed more tandem offense, that was a positive, but I need to see OTM develop a lot more. And maybe that's gonna happen because they were pissed about their loss in the parking lot. They came across Jada Parker, who said they need to open their minds and not get played like they did. She completely put them in their place and decided that she is their missing piece with the guys agreeing almost immediately. For her first major TV appearance, Parker showed a ton of personality and she came off super strong-willed. I loved this from her. And adding a woman to a men's group, it's almost always a plus, particularly when they're not just eye candy like they used to be back in the day. It was particularly nice how the guys didn't brush her off at all. They just straight bought into what she was selling. I loved the way that was written, and I'm really excited to see this develop. One real quick side note, though. I hate how they're called OTM with scripts. That should be the group name. And I thought it was the group name this entire time until they walked to the ring. So that was confusing to me. Lyra Valkyrie hit the ring with a better presentation than usual, wondering who would step up next to fight her at Vengeance Day. She announced that Ava set a 20-woman battle royal that will reduce to a fatal four-way with the winner facing her for the title. Willa Vice popped out with Electra Lopez, reminding about her NXT breakout contract. Lyra shot back, 
All Lola does is talk and shake her ass. Facts. While Electra is the one that actually has a presence and had some success with Legato del Fantasma. Valkyria tried to fight then and there, but Lopez took a shot and Tatum Paxley made the save. This was kind of rough. Like Lola should be out there getting reps and stacking wins because right now she's neither impressive in the ring nor on the mic. Developmental, yes, we talk about that all the time. She has plenty of time to find all that, but this reeks to me of a situation where they just need to get this match out of the way so all of them can move on. Lyra, she's improving on the mic, but there's a lack of believability there that needs to be addressed. It's easier said than done to figure that out, but I'm hopeful she will. She's still immensely young. Uh, NXT Anonymous caught JC Jane sharing her plan with other women at Chase U. She started showing them something on her phone, but we obviously didn't get to see it. Like I said last week, for some reason, it seems like they're wanting us to think that this is going to be like an OnlyFans play or something, but clearly it will be something else. At least I think it's going to be something else. I did think we'd get more this week. There was really nothing else about Chase U that was a little bit disappointing. Tiffany Stratton arrived at Fallon Henley's ranch, just as you'd expect, wearing all pink with a sequined cowboy hat, high heels, short skirt, fuzzy jacket, and bra top. I thought they might do like a Paris Hilton Simple Life parody, but it was more extreme actually than that. We later saw Tiffy grabbing and dumping hay and cleaning a horse. Somehow she got dirty while she was cleaning a horse with water. How that happens, who knows? Then she had to muck a stall filled with horse manure. Really not that bad of a word. Ma, which is good. Newer, which is also good. Ma newer. All the ranch hands were teasing Stratton, but Henley gave her credit getting through the day. Tiffy called it hell on the worst day of her life because she had to spend it with Fallon. Just as she was ranting, she went to leave, stepped in horseshit, fell backwards into a trough. She threw a fit, splashing water everywhere. The ending was easily the best part of the entire deal. It was B-movie stuff otherwise, but we know that's going to be the case with these NXT extended vignettes and video packages. It was worth doing overall, funny for what we got. It was just really tough to follow the R-Truth segment from Monday. He made it almost impossible for anything else that happened on wrestling television this week to be considered great when that segment was so incredible. Uh, Gigi Dolan fought Cora Jade. The offense was basically even for most of the match, but it was shockingly short. Jade held onto the referee's pants to avoid Dolan's finisher, coming back with her double underhook DDT finisher for the win. I'm not sure what's going on with some of these NXT women's matches recently, but they all used to get solid time. Now, many of them are like stupidly short, and a lot of them have involved Gigi, others with Stratton and Henley. We've mentioned them previously. Like, sure, they can rematch this, but what was the even point of doing it in the first place? I, sometimes you only need one match. I don't need a two or three match series every single time. You know what I mean? Uh, Josh Briggs fought Oro Mensa. Metaphor was laughing at the crew breaking up last week, taking credit for the implosion. Briggs popped in saying they weren't responsible and he wanted another shot at the Heritage Cup, basically deciding to fight Mensa to try and get the opportunity. Briggs planted Mensa in the match. And though Metaphor tried to distract him in the referee, he avoided a kick into the corner and hit a monster lariat for the win while staring at Noam Dar. Nice singles win for Briggs. They're building him into a new role. Nothing too notable. And Mensa's really good. So I kind of wanted to see both of them go, but we never really got that opportunity. Lastly, Nikita Lyons and Blair Davenport had a match. As Nikita was walking in the parking lot ahead of the show, Blair tried but failed on a sneak attack. Commentary told us they were kayfabe fighting for 15 straight minutes backstage before the bell rang. Yet their clothes were changed. Sure, Jan. Uh, Davenport hit a smart double stomp into Lyons' repaired knee. Nikita came back with an extremely poor DDT where she like force jerked Blair's neck backward. Then she somehow wrapped her knee around the post like slow as molasses with a roundhouse kick. Didn't even sell it, not even for a second. Davenport chopped it out back in the ring, hitting Kamagoye for the win. I've been saying it for weeks now. Nikita is not ready for prime time. Nothing is working with her. And here, there were at least two scenarios in which Davenport could have been injured by wrestling with her. I'm not calling her Nia Jax. She's a developmental talent, okay? But clearly coming out of this injury, she has not improved at all. And she has been training. She hasn't been completely out this entire time. So if it's me, if I have the book, if I'm Shawn Michaels, I'm taking her off TV for at least three months, working with her, seeing if there's something to salvage there. Because the product that we have with Nikita Lyons right now, it is not going to work long term. I'm sorry, just not. Hopefully she stays strong. Blair does. Despite that New Year's Evil defeat, I'm glad she won the match for all those reasons I mentioned and more. So we're going to get to AEW in a moment. Before we get to that, 
We're going to discuss what happened on Twitter this week. But allow me to remind you first that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please, folks. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King Adam Silverstein, vintage Chris Vanini, our co-host on those WWE episodes and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast in its totality. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You will get exclusive audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant recaps for all the television shows. You will also get exclusive news posts every single Friday. And we've been not only breaking news, but on top of a lot of major news that has been happening across the world of professional wrestling. You can do all of it, again, by going to buymeacoffee.com slash getting over and signing up. Okay, let's move on here. Now, it is difficult for me to do this today because there is truly no following the absolute evisceration that Stephen A. Smith laid down on his show this week. For those of you who know what I'm talking about, that was expert tier, and I can only hope to do justice to this topic the way he did his topic. But the difference between what Stephen A. dropped and what we're going to discuss today is that Stephen A. has legitimate vitriol for his subject, and I do not. Look, I think we can all agree No matter what wrestling brand you prefer, the industry is better because AEW exists. It's better for the fans and it's better for the wrestlers themselves. We have gotten to the point though, where AEW is standing in the way of its own success. And that's largely because of who is running AEW in Tony Khan. Let's get one thing straight. Tony has put his money where his mouth is. The guy is investing millions upon millions into AEW and has largely been successful. Even if the TV ratings and the attendance have stagnated to a degree, he's nevertheless grown this product immensely. 73,000 tickets at Wembley Stadium, more than that, does not happen by accident. But for all of the praise that we could laud onto Tony for his investment, the way he handled the Brody Lee situation during the pandemic, the way he paid independent wrestlers that he did not need to pay during the pandemic. I could really go on because this guy has done a lot of good. What became clear during Brawl Out, all the way to Brawl In, all the way to the Tuesday Night War debacle, all the way to what happened this week, is that Tony so frequently is an embarrassment as the head of a company. And you'll notice, I didn't even mention two weeks ago, The fact that he addressed serious allegations against one of his stars with a smile on his face while wearing a wig and glasses at a press conference. I digress. Let me provide a little backstory because I truly hope that most of you listening are not as terminally online as most wrestling fans, nor as terminally online as I have to be for my work in sports and to effectively host this wrestling podcast. Over the period of a few weeks, while justifying his booking style, and the AEW product as a whole. Tony pointed to cage match ratings as a barometer of success. He didn't say it was the barometer, but even going so far as to mention these ratings was a massive eye roll. For those who don't know, Cage Match is a wrestling database website. And by the way, it's an incredible tool, whether you're a fan or a journalist. You're looking for a match, you wanna know where it happened, who won, winning streaks, losing streaks, matches held, whatever the case, you can find it on Cage Match. I get so much freaking research done on there. It is ridiculous. But it also has a component, this website, where random fans can grade matches and shows one through 10. The most graded match in AEW history has 1,043 votes. Most obviously have way fewer, either in the low hundreds or the dozens. So you're talking about the IWC, which is a fragment of the wrestling audience, and then a wrestling database website, which is a fragment of a fragment of the wrestling audience. There is no scenario 
in which a cage match rating, as much as I may like the website, should determine anything, particularly whether a match or show is successful. If anything, it's confirmation bias. The fragment of an audience for whom I book likes the way I book, therefore it must be good. I digress again. So Tony makes these cage match comments and gets mocked for them online. Everyone has a good laugh, they move on. This Saturday on Collision, Hook comes out and challenges Samoa Joe for the AEW title in a video package. Apparently, some folks criticized this. I didn't see much of that. I personally have no problem with the booking, but some did. Fine. Monday on WWE Raw, Jinder Mahal challenges Seth Rollins for the World Heavyweight Championship. Again, maybe some criticized this. I didn't see much of it. I personally have no problem with the booking. Apparently, Tony didn't see anyone criticize it. Now, why he would be looking or caring about that, who knows? USA Network, the network account, not WWE, the network account, responded to a tweet about Rollins and Hall having previously fought before. They sent a fun, sarcastic quip as a reply tweet. That tweet was, what was the cage match rating? That's it. No mention of AEW, no mention of Tony Khan, no one tagged in the tweet, not even a full tweet, a reply tweet. Whoever saw it out there likely smirked, maybe they laughed, and they moved on with their lives. Not Tony. Tony took it as a personal affront, just like he did when he started loading up a dynamite card on Tuesday a few months ago, and WWE responded by loading up its own NXT show head-to-head, because heaven forbid Tony not be able to say or do whatever he wants without either criticism or (gasps) competition. In terms of what was going through Tony's mind at this moment, I cannot begin to guess. I presume he was previously embarrassed for the the ridiculous cage match assertions that he's made in the past. Those were rightly and roundly ridiculed. So here, he sees cage match being mocked in a tweet, and even though he's not named, he takes it personally. A mature person would see it, they would note it, and they'd move on with their day. Perhaps they might be self-deprecating about it. Because if you can't laugh at yourself, that's a problem on its own. Particularly if you're someone who holds billions of dollars to their name and should have much better things to do in their life, including, you know, booking a wrestling television show. Imagine having a life where you get to run two sports teams in the NFL and the EPL, and you get to book your own wrestling show. And by the way, you never have to worry about money. We should all be so lucky. But Tony, as we saw during Brawl Out, Brawl In, lambasting Big Swole publicly on New Year's Eve, calling Paul Levesque and Shawn Michaels bald assholes for doing their jobs, ranting that he's not gonna take any more of this fucking shit during a press conference, as we have seen so many times before. Tony again showed us he's not a mature individual. He's certainly not a serious one. And he continues to make major unforced errors as this leader of a huge company. Tony decides his best move is not to laugh at himself and wipe his mouth with a $100 bill. Rather, he needs to respond to this tweet from, I repeat, a network account, some social media marketing employee having a bit of fun on a Monday night just doing their job. Let me ask you this. Did the Burger King CEO decide to go scorched earth on the Wendy's Twitter account because it mentioned that the royal fries are soggy? No, of course he didn't. He went on with his life because of social media. It doesn't matter. And it was nothing worth spending another minute on. That's not Tony Khan who we have to surmise now has the thinnest skin of any wrestling promoter in history. Tony decides he can't take people criticizing his booking and he can't take a subtweet from USA Network. So he decides to take the bait of one of the biggest phishing tweets I have ever seen and he sends these consecutive messages. First, a double standard. Hook, 28 and one career record on a winning streak, calls out the champ, a logical challenge, sparks online outrage. Jinder, 
has literally lost every single match he's in for the past year, immediately gets a title shot. Where is the rage? Second, a moral victory for USA is one win more than their world title challenger Jinder Mahal has in the past 364 days because it's literally been a full year since he won a match. You really put AEW in our place getting Jinder Mahal in a big match on your TV show. Do it more often. So let's consider first that Tony was almost certainly stewing for days about whatever small corner of the internet didn't like the hook booking. He had to have read about it somewhere. He probably didn't address it Sunday because his Jacksonville Jaguars were getting bounced out of the NFL playoff contention. I mean, this guy should be worried about what the hell to do about Trevor Lawrence and Doug Peterson, not WWE creative. But then he almost certainly saw USA send this tweet, which is objectively hilarious to get upset about, right? And Googled Jinder Mahal cage match, like literally going to the website he's being mocked about to find this data. He then thinks, hmm, it's probably in the best interest of AEW for me to try and take a shot at WWE in a far more public manner than the reply tweet ever could have reached. And then he probably thinks, hmm, since I'm a manager of hundreds of men and women, the best way for me to address this is by literally insulting a talent, the same type of person that I employ. The last thing you do in professional wrestling is drag the boys or the girls. Talent is everything. Let's not forget that Jinder Mahal, despite being one-on-one -on -one in singles matches over the last year, Tony was actually wrong that he hadn't won a match, is immensely well-liked by his peers. Supposedly a great guy. Let's not forget that Jinder Mahal is known by probably, I can't even guess the factor, a hundred times more people than Hook, maybe more. Let's not forget that Jinder Mahal was the fucking WWE champion, like it or not, for 170 days. When you're a world champion, you don't need a record qualifier to get a title match. Just look at The Miz. Let's not forget that Tony took Abaddon, who had not been on TV in two years, gave her a number one contendership and allowed her to get into a title match on her first match back on television. Then he artificially inflated her record with a few extra bullshit wins after the fact to justify it. Let's not forget that Orange Cassidy gives international title matches to anyone who looks at him, even if they're not signed to the company and regardless of their record or their past. Let's not forget Jinder is actually two and eight in his last 10 televised matches. Daniel Garcia was three and seven in his last 10 before he fought MJF for the AEW title on Dynamite last November. Oh, and let's not forget, and folks, this is by far the most important. None of this shit is real. These records do not matter. It's scripted wrestling, not real life combat sports. And even if it was, anyone who follows boxing knows that true number one contenders don't always get title shots. I digress again. Not only is this immense insecurity and pure whataboutism, but it's once again Tony stoking the flames of tribalism that he himself has said so many times should not exist, and his talent has said even more times they wished did not exist. It's also him once again proving that he is online way too effing much, and he is putting way too much stock in what a tiny corner of the internet, a tiny percentage of his own fan base is tweeting at him on social media. If you were going to address this at all, you send a message to your own fans. Hey, Hook is 28 and one with however many consecutive wins. He showed a lot of guts challenging Samoa Joe, and I'm real excited for him to have this match if Joe accepts. Why even mention gender or try to what about it to WWE? If that's your only defense for shoddy booking, well, look, don't laugh at me. Laugh at WWE because they book even worse than I do. That's extremely weak. These tweets from him, as so many others before them have been, were utterly embarrassing. If you want whataboutism, what about calling out Vince McMahon for alleged sexual assault, only to then hire Ric Flair and employ other people who have accusations against them? And it also brings us back to why AEW and Tony are struggling so much these days. The company was based on the success of the elite and a groundswell 
from the wrestling community that badly, badly needed an alternative to WWE. The WWE product, for any quality angles or any positive momentum it could garner for brief periods of time, was in a massive creative rut with Vince McMahon in charge. People protest chanted for years, CM Punk. People stopped watching the show, and when they did, they weren't even that enthusiastic to be there. When the only major product in a game is in steep decline, and you present a fresh alternative to millions of fans seeking better entertainment, you're hitting that market at the exact perfect time. But what happened? The worst possible thing for AEW. That was Vince McMahon retiring and eventually merging WWE with UFC. And then you have Paul Levesque taking over creative. Because what we have seen over the last 17 months is the most significant turnaround for WWE since the Attitude Era. And fans no longer hold their noses while they watch WWE. They also no longer hold their same passion for AEW because that premier product is back operating as well as ever. From a revenue generating standpoint, better than ever. This is all happening while AEW is simultaneously cratering creatively. Folks are not as over as they used to be in many cases. And there is not this influx of former WWE talent like a John Moxley or a Brian Danielson or most notably a CM Punk, to create and continue momentum for them as a competitor. AEW and Tony are no longer the IWC's golden boys, and given the entire company was based on catering to that subsection of fans, Tony is undoubtedly feeling the pressure. And when he sees criticism from them, it's that 50 cent meme. Why fuck me? Like, why are you talking shit about me? You're supposed to be on my side. The best thing AEW can do is stick to what works. Stuff like the Continental Classic. Stuff like putting on good TV shows with creative that makes sense. Stuff like Tony Khan staying the hell off Twitter and finding better ways to use what little free time I imagine he has. It reminds me of a line from The Big Lebowski, my favorite film. The cop tells the dude, stay out of Malibu, deadbeat. Stay off of Twitter, Tony. Instead, This not only failed to accomplish anything, this little mini rant, it was even more embarrassing to Tony and AEW than the initial cage match comment. It didn't do anything to get AEW fans excited for their title match, Joe versus Hook. It instead got fans riled up to watch his competitor on Monday to see Jinder against Rollins in WWE. You know, when CM Punk and all that stuff went down in AEW, I split the blame evenly between him and Tony. Though it was Khan at fault for not doing his job by firing Punk. That allowed the incident to further split his company and it allowed it to flow into a second year rather than being nipped in the bud right away. When CM Punk said during Brawl Out that he worked with fucking children, I assumed he was referring to the Young Bucks and Hangman Page. Maybe he was actually talking about the guy sitting to his left. All right, folks, there is still an absolute ton left On today's episode, we're going to break down everything that happened across AEW this week. And coming out of that, you may think, oh, Silver King's about to rip all the AEW product. No, (laughs) I enjoyed myself this week watching AEW. Some things more than others, as usual. I have my criticisms, but I liked what we got. And I'll tell you, I get these arguments that Daly's Place, you know, it only seats 3,000 people. It has weird viewing angles for wrestling. There is something about the setup of this venue I just like. Maybe it's nostalgia from the pandemic and all those shows that they ran. It's probably more just like a differentiation of the standard arena setup, which I always believe wrestling can benefit from a change of scenery. It's one thing that WCW used to do so well. I loved it. They would do something at a mall. They would do Bash at the Beach. They would do Hog Wild at Sturgis. There's something about Dynamite Homecoming on Wednesday that hit for me, probably because of some of that nostalgia, but... Wrestling has to get out of this center of an arena, exact same camera angles, do something a little bit different. Maybe that's why I like NXT to a degree, just because it's different than what we get on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. I don't know, but I enjoyed the atmosphere of Daly's Place, Wednesday Night for Dynamite, 
We're not going to start there, though. We're actually going to start with Collision. And by the way, we're going to mix up all of this based on storyline across Rampage, Collision, and Dynamite. But let's go ahead and talk about Hook, right? Because why not? That's what we just came off talking about. On Collision, Hook was wearing a hoodie sitting on a car or something in the street. He said his winning percentage is second to none, and it's time to go after another championship. So he's coming after Samoa Joe, someone who he's been watching from a young age. Commentary told us the arena exploded for this promo. It absolutely did not, because we would have heard it. Literally made zero noise. Now, this is what Tony was alluding to, suggesting he and AEW received criticism for this booking. I had no real issue with it, especially seeing it live. Though, should we as viewers consider him a real world title contender? I would say no, right? Like, don't get me wrong. The promo itself was shit, but a challenge is a challenge. And as long as Joe beats him in a short match, that's going to be fine. That, of course, remains to be seen how it's booked. But going back to Tony suggesting that Hook's 28-1 and record is worthy of a world title match. I mean, if you go by the numbers, no question. But I'm going to read you the list of everyone he has beaten on TV just for context. And the only reason I did this is because of the cage match stuff. I said, you know what? Let me go use it for its intended purpose. I'm going to go dig into Hook's entire AEW career. So 28-1, and right? Here's who he's beaten. Fuego de Sol, Bear Bronson, Aaron Solo, Serpentico, Blake Lee, QT Marshall, Anthony Henry, JD Drake, the DKC, Zach Clayton, Ari Davari, Exodus Prime, Balaam Lynx, Peter Avalon, Stokely Hathaway. That's 15 basic jobbers right there. Then he has Angelo Parker, Lee Moriarty, Low Carters. He took down Matt Hardy in four minutes, 10 months ago, Ethan Page twice, and Rocky Romero. Those are lower mid-carters. Now we get to the wins that matter. He beat Ricky Starks in 92 seconds in July, 2022. Then he beat Jack Perry after losing to Jack Perry. And most recently he beat Wheeler Yuta, which is probably his best win simply because Wheeler has held titles. So that's your 28 and one. Is that record worthy of a world title match? No, not on its own, but he issued a challenge. And that's why it's okay if that challenge gets accepted. Now to suggest that that 28 and one record is more deserving of a world title match than a guy in Jinder Mahal who is a former WWE champion? No, it's not. That's absolutely ridiculous. Especially because, as I said earlier, all of this is kayfabe and none of it actually matters. But do I have an issue with Hook challenging Joe? Not at all. In fact, I kind of want to see the match even before Tony tweeted about it. In fact, Tony made me want to see it less, but I still do want to see it. I believe it's next Wednesday on Dynamite. Speaking of Dynamite, Hangman Page fought Claudio Castagnoli. This got set up on collision. Claudio squashed a jobber after cutting like a two-box promo saying he doesn't need reasons to fight. And since Hangman was looking for one, he would answer. This opened the show. Hangman hit a moonsault off the elevated stage and countered into a tombstone pile driver. Claudio countered Deadeye into the top turnbuckle, only for Page to hit it shortly after. Hangman countered a powerbomb out of the corner into a hurricanrana, hitting a buckshot lariat, and then another one immediately after. Somehow the first one didn't take Claudio down for the win. Excellent wrestling. I thought the end with two of that specific type of finisher was a little bit ridiculous. Obviously the right winner though, Pages has a track to get back into the world title picture. Four stars, A minus. On Dynamite, Samoa Joe closed hour one with a refreshed and I would say slightly downgraded AEW title belt back on a black strap, but now it has removable side plates, just like WWE. Joe said he was changing the protocol. All wrestlers need to do is submit their resume to the championship committee and he'll stomp their asses out, whoever they choose for him to fight. So Swerve Strickland immediately answered. And am I the only one, by the way, who dislikes all the eye makeup on him? I just think it looks weird. Anyway, he did exactly what Joe said not to do. He made his case on the mic rather than submitting his resume, got right in his face. Hangman followed and did the exact same thing. He said he lost sight of the AEW title. He got in Swerve's face saying he would regain it in 2024. Prince Nana got Swerve out of the ring. So then Hangman got in Joe's face. It seemed like this whole thing was going to peter out, but Hook shows up and there was a really cool visual element of a Hook-like bat signal on a moon graphic on one of the dailies play screens. And before Hook walked out, Samoa Joe looked up at it almost as like he saw the bat signal and he's the villain, so therefore he should be scared. I loved that. I thought it was so sick. So Hook walks around the ring, gets right in Joe's face to the point they did an Eskimo kiss, which was kind of weird. He then held up a finger noting one week until they fight and he walked out. Something AEW 
is doing much better than WWE, with the exception of the last couple of weeks of SmackDown, is consistently having multiple people vying for the world title. So when one challenger is thwarted, there's another one or two right there waiting. And that's why this segment worked for me. It's fair to note that each challenger who appeared didn't exactly do much of anything, but the fact that they went one, two, three, all standing up to Joe was a real cool visual. It made the division and the championship feel important. Commentary tried real hard to put over Hook's 28 and one record, but obviously we already discussed how that is immensely hollow. I do hope Joe beats Hook handily. It really should be like a six minute match, no longer than 10. It would help to show that Joe is dominant and it's not gonna cost Hook anything to lose. Again, it really should be like six minutes. On collision, Adam Copeland hit the ring to open hour two, saying he works harder than Christian Cage, who should thank Killswitch for saving his ass. He promised to earn his way back to a number one contendership. Griff Garrison came out with Maria Kanellis and Cole Carter. I guess this is something in Ring of Honor. I have no idea, never seen this before, to basically accept the open challenge. Garrison slapped him across the face, so Copeland took it and started the match. Griff did a little offense, but, you know, not much of anything. Copeland hit a superplex and his impaler DDT before winning with a crossface. Carter attacked after the bell. He missed a 450 and ate a spear. I saw some people criticizing this. Again, I don't really see any issue. Copeland, upon joining AEW, he said he wanted to wrestle a lot and he wanted to wrestle a lot of young talent. And a storyline was created for him to do exactly that before he gets back to Christian. Do I care about the storyline? No. But is it bad? Also no. On Dynamite, Copeland, Orange Cassidy, Dustin Rhodes, and Preston Vance fought Lance Archer, Brian Cage, and Gates of Agony. So Tony let Brody Lee Jr., so negative one, his son, book two eight-person matches because they were in Daly's place, it's homecoming, and obviously it's where they did the celebration of life for Brody. One of them had Vance in it, the other had Anna Jay because both of them were Brody's protégés in Dark Order. Obviously, these two matches that we're gonna talk about didn't really work in kayfabe, but if there's ever gonna be an exception, you make an exception for this. Long sequence of signatures as usual in matches like this. Dustin hit a cannonball outside. Vance hit Brody's discus lariat, got the win. One other thing, I said this last week, Justin Roberts absolutely must stop this announce of Copeland. He goes, the rated R super, 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 superstar. It is awful. Justin is great. The intro is awful. Please stop trying to make it happen. It's not gonna happen. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. I actually think it's the first time we've ever used that drop twice in one show. Let's keep going. On Dynamite, Sammy Guevara fought Ricky Starks. Les Sex Gods were backstage at Rampage, with Sammy saying his upcoming match with Ricky is what AEW is about, and it is restoring the feeling of the company. All right. Starks on Collision cut a promo on Guevara, and Big Bill challenged Les Sex Gods to have their title match in a street fight next week. I do like them together as champions. They're starting to grow on me. Starks got feet up on a moonsault and hit a nice lariat plus a Liger bomb. Guevara then hit him with an admittedly nice super kick, only to slowly roll him over for a one, two, three coming out of that. So at first, I thought this was a real finish and I actually kind of liked it. There should be way more sudden knockout victories in wrestling. It's not nearly done often enough. And it was also a real unique way to end the match, but it actually seems like Starks got concussed and they quickly decided to end the match this way even though they continued with a whole post-match afterward. I don't know if Starks was always supposed to lose, but I assumed he would lose the match anyway. So they shook hands after, only for Big Bill to attack from behind. Apparently Guevara has never watched AEW, didn't know that was coming. Jericho then entered with the heels not knowing to look at the ramp because apparently when music plays, they think that he's gonna come out of the crowd, which Jericho does not do. They came off like morons. Jericho hit a code breaker and then production kept his music playing for the duration of this brawl. I was gonna make a sarcastic comment about it being written into the contract that they can't turn off the music until after the first course, because it's Judas. Sarcasm aside, I actually believe it was done to keep fans from booing Jericho, which I doubt would have happened anyway at Daly's place, but it was an obvious attempt to keep them from doing that. Now look, I expected Guevara to win because he's the title challenger, but man, at the same time, like if that was, the planned winner of the match, Ricky losing is so tough. This guy was going toe to toe with CM Punk and Brian Danielson a couple months ago. Now he's a champion yet losing to Sammy. It does kind of seem like Tony knows that Ricky's probably gone sooner than later and he's just making the best of it. That's my take on the situation. On Collision, FTR fought House of Black 
FTR hit the superplex splash combo that really should have a name. Buddy Matthews broke the fall with a Meteora on Cash Wheeler into Dax Harwood on the cover. Cash got caught on a Tope Suicida and tossed over the announce table. Malachi Black pointed at and taunted Harwood's family while holding a chair. Dax got up on him with FTR hitting Shatter Machine on Buddy for a broken fall. FTR took out Black with a spike pile driver on the ring apron. And Daniel Garcia came down with a chair to intercept Brody King. Dax got stomped coming back in the ring for a rope break, but countered Buddy into a 1-2-3. The house attacked immediately as per usual, stomping Cash into a chair before Malachi hit Black Mass through a chair into Dax. Julia Hart then did a spooky like 10 bell salute, I guess for the fallen faces, and the house stood tall to end the show. I went 3.75 stars B plus for the match itself. So the house lost and basically did not abide by their challenge, which was to kind of leave FTR alone if they could beat them, which they did clean. I mean, that's fine because they're heels, but if they basically never win unless they're champions, it's really tough to believe in them long-term. I presume we're going to get a trios match with Garcia on FTR side. And I'm largely down with that. Like the idea that Garcia could learn to be a wrestler again rather than a sports entertainer alongside FTR. That plays, it's a good fit. I guess I just need to see it play out more to see if it's something I'm gonna buy into as a viewer. On Rampage, the ROH tag team titles were on the line, Undisputed Kingdom against Commander and Brian Keith. You may be wondering why Commander got not one, but two undeserving title matches without any build on back-to-back shows. You can ask me that 10,000 times going, I'm never going to have an answer for you. He stood on Keith's shoulders to hit a superplex, but Kingdom came back with their finisher to retain. Roderick Strong was out with them. And the good news is that they were using the new logo instead of the Devil Mask logo, as I had hoped, coming out of Dynamite last week. Most positive remark I have on this, though, because it was otherwise meaningless. On Dynamite, Strong fought Keith in a singles match. All of Undisputed Kingdom came out. Uh, Wardlow was the only one not in logo gear. Keith hit Diamond Dust. Strong hit a jumping knee and end of heartache to win in a short match. Adam Cole then cut a promo saying they didn't want to earn fans respect because they deserve it. He called Strong the greatest pro wrestler alive, saying he deserves the international title. He put over the kingdom and said Wardlow is surrounded by people who actually respect him, meaning we will bring home the AEW world title. It was almost identical to last week's promo. No one stepped to them. Nothing new was said. Super boring and not a great follow from a lackluster debut a week ago. On Collision, Bullet Club Gold were about to address their relationship with the acclaimed when the faces came up. Jay White said it's none of their business and they would handle Undisputed Kingdom themselves. It got contentious between all of them. Acclaimed pointed out they got attacked too and they wanted revenge. Anthony Bowen said that he learned the only way to get to the top in AEW is through factions, which White and Billy Gunn both know plenty about. Basically, he suggested they combine forces. On Dynamite, Bullet Club Gold talked about being interested in Trio's Gold when Acclaimed came in with Bowens again suggesting an alliance, the Big Bang Scissor Gang. It's actually a great name, I will admit. Austin Gunn was Peacemaker again, and White said that they would consider it. So obviously they're going to do it, at least I hope, because this would be immensely refreshing for Acclaimed if it goes down. But given Bullet Club Gold is now a trio, I would expect it to be short-lived of anything, resulting in a feud immediately and a title change. On Collision, Darby, Allen, and Sting fought the Workhorsemen. Darby got attacked before the bell. Sting no-sold a chair shot. Ric Flair chopped J.D. Drake. Darby did a coffin drop outside in a throwaway match, and the faces won a squash with Scorpion Death Drop on Drake. There was no reason for this match to happen whatsoever, unless they're just trying to like artificially inflate Sting's record. But even if you're doing that, put him in matches that people want to see, not the Workhorsemen on Collision. Later backstage, Flair put over Sting and Darby being 26-0, going into the tag team match on Dynamite. Sting said he would cut an old school promo and not coast through the last few weeks of his career. It was an old school promo. It was pretty good too. Darby looked like he was going to break the entire time from laughing. So it really just looks like they're trying to send him out 30-0. And that's it. It has to be the play. We got that next match. I guess it was the 27th match on Dynamite, Darby and Sting against Powerhouse Hobbs and Konosuke Takeshka in a tornado tag match. Now, this featured Flair at ringside and Jim Ross on commentary. They immediately went into the crowd, which confused me because I thought tornado rules were just no tagging, but otherwise a regular match. The heels picked up Darby and swung him before tossing him like a corkscrew, really sick spot. Flair got into the ring with Sting down and poked Hobbs in the eye, allowing 64-year-old Sting to dominate Hobbs, who's literally half his age at 32, Takeshka missed a jumping knee into a barricade, so Darby hit a coffin drop from like 10 or 12 feet in the air. Somehow, two tables that did not exist before just happened to be set up below the stage, and Sting 
hit a scorpion death drop on Hobbs off the stage into them. One of them collapsed. The other one stood up. Neither of them broke. Sting put a hand on Hobbs' chest, got the one, two, three at ringside. So this was actually a falls count anywhere match, which they did mention early. I'm not criticizing it, but it wasn't a tornado match, at least based on what I know those rules to be. Tornado match, again, no tagging, but the finish happens in the ring. Here, there was no tagging, falls count anywhere, street fight, no holds barred, whatever you want it to be. Sting took a brutal bump off the stage and my DVR cut off right there because it was another overrun. On the overrun note, Tony Schiavone mentions it every episode as if it is some accomplishment. The only people who care about the existence of overruns are smart fans who track ratings. Remember earlier, we were talking about a tiny percentage of a tiny percentage? That's who gives a shit about an overrun. This is another example of how AEW caters way too much to the hardcores and doesn't just do their thing. NXT, for example, has an overrun every week. It's double, it's like 10 minutes. They never mention it. It's just something that exists. Also, my YouTube TV never misses the NXT overrun. It always misses the AEW Dynamite one. So TBS or YouTube TV, someone needs to get to work in that regard because it's pissing me off. I didn't see what happened after this live, but I did see a 75 second clip on Twitter where Sting was going to announce his final match only for the Young Bucks to return in suits with awful porn stashes. They stared unflinching at both guys as I presume the show ended. So surprising final opponent, sure. As much as I may not like the Young Bucks and I do not want to see this match, there's no denying that they plus Darby will put on a hell of a match and do a lot of heavy lifting to hide Sting. They're going to make him look like a million bucks and the stars will fall from the sky, I am sure. Do I think they're the appropriate final opponents for a legend like Sting? No, I have zero interest in this whatsoever as a viewer, but I completely understand the booking and I'm sure that it's going to be better than the majority of matches that could have otherwise been booked, if that makes sense. On Dynamite, Tony Storm backstage told Mariah May she didn't see even a frame of her match, even though she was sent a screener. She asked Lutha to set up a match with Deanna Perrazzo and gave Mariah a chocolate to placate her. Deanna showed up later saying she'll send Tony a screener and debut in the ring on Collision. Red Velvet randomly came up, I guess, to do 10% of a build to the match. I'm glad all you like this with Tony. It's not for me. Tony was less ridiculous this week than usual. That's a positive. But wouldn't it have just made sense for Peraza's first match to be against May, right? On Rampage, Hikaru Shida fought Anna Jay. The rest of the old JAS was backstage with Anna confident in herself. Harley Cameron then started flirting with Angelo Parker and whispered in his ear. Now the deal with Harley and the Outcast makes a lot more sense than it did the first two weeks. Maybe it went over my head, I'll admit. I just missed it, but now I get what they're doing and I like it. Anna hit a nice glory bomb. Sheeta came back with a falcon arrow, only for Jay to counter the pinfall for a three count where the referee counted one with a shoulder up and then should have counted three because Sheeta didn't kick out until four. The entire crowd noticed this botch. Sheeta easily escaped Queen Slayer and hit Tamashi for a false finish. She came back with a flying Midora and a katana for the win. Solid match really hurt by the botch. I had no expectation of Anna beating Sheeta, but it's really strange that AEW features Anna in a talking role with a storyline and has her lose. And Sheeta basically only has matches and always wins, but there's no real capitalization of that success. You know what I mean? On Rampage, Chris Statlander and Willow Nightingale fought jobbers. Stokely Hathaway interrupted introductions to do his own extended exaggerating and decently funny in announce for Statlander. She smacked the back of his head. Then he just cast Willow aside. The faces easily won and Stoke ran in to raise Stat's arm with Willow pushing him away. Remains to be seen whether it's like flirting or trying to accomplish something more nefarious, but it is strange to see Stat be so happy-go-lucky when she was gold chasing and TBS champion upon her return. It does seem like it's like a simping storyline from him, which makes sense. And it makes me think she'll deny him. He'll bring in someone to take her out, but we'll see. I'm curious to see where this goes at a minimum which is more than I can say about a lot of AEW women's storylines. On Collision, Willow uh, thought Stokes' involvement was strange. Stat had an iguana on her shoulder for some reason, and she said they're two of the best wrestlers in AEW. On Collision, Kiara Hogan fought Sky Blue. No rhyme or reason for this match. Super kick party both ways. Sky hit a TKO, transitioned into a dragon sleeper for the win. Loved that sequence. Huge improvement over Code Blue, night and day. They're actually doing a better job building Sky than I think they are Julia Hart. Still have to give her purpose, but 
you know, maybe there's something here. On Dynamite, the other eight-person match, Stat, Willow, Thunder Rosa, and Anna against Sky, Julia, Soraya, and Ruby Soho. They did that absurd eight-person vertical suplex spot. Stat hit a rolling German and a countered Sky into Queenslayer, got the win. Solid, just like the men's match. We knew the winner for sentimental reasons, but both did well overall. Knowing that this was coming, it would have been nice if Anna got that win on Rampage so she could have gained momentum with consecutive wins. Sky has a few wins. They could have feuded. Maybe Anna beat Sky, goes after uh, Julia Hart. Like a little foresight here would have paid off for everyone. On Collision, the Continental Championship was on the line. Uh, Eddie Kingston against Trent Beretta. Eddie had all three titles this time. Trent got busted open. I missed whether it was Hardaway. I presume it was. Beretta hit a running knee and a gotch pile driver. Eddie came back with a half and half suplex and spinning back fist, plus a Northern Lights bomb for the retention. The fans went wild for Eddie in the finishing sequence. This was a great first title defense for Kingston. Even if I still have problems that I mentioned last week with like Beretta becoming the initial contender, the match was good. 3.5 stars and a B. On Rampage, the ROH Pure title was on the line. Wheeler Yuta against Commander. This is the second Commander title match that I was sarcastic about earlier. Again, no rhyme or reason for this. After a counter sequence, Wheeler hit the hammer elbows and locked in a submission. Commander had used all of his rope breaks and he had to tap out. Yuta then gave a throwaway Code of Honor handshake after the bell. They just got to stop putting these ROH Pure matches on AEW TV. This is a paradigm of an ROH match that should be left on that show. In a tape promo on Dynamite, Yuta challenged Kingston to visit his show, Rampage. Decent promo. Ridiculous that a champion is going after a triple crown two weeks after that person won the title. Like, what are we doing here? On Rampage, the Hardys and Mark Briscoe fought Butcher Blade and Kip Sabian. No rhyme or reason for this match. Although, I thought Butcher and Blade left AEW. Uh, Jeff Hardy botched the corner splash off Matt's back. Sabian accidentally double drop kicked his teammates, eating Twist of Fate, Swanton Bomb, and Froggy Bow for the babyface win. Remember a couple years ago when Jeff said he wasn't going to do Swanton in every match because it hurt him too much? He was only going to save it for big matches. I guess maybe he got healthier. He feels like he can do it, but seems unnecessary. Anyway, the Hardys put themselves over backstage when Private Party came up. So Matt put them over saying they should split ways, but he was also kind of dismissive, throwing shirts on them. It seemed like the segment lacked a bit of focus, but it did result in a match. Party felt they were insulted, so that's fine. And lastly, on Rampage, Sanjay Dutt brought cameras into the still unnamed Jeff Jarrett stable locker room, saying he got them a tag team match to get the group back on the right path. Karen Jarrett, of all people, co-signed what I just said and have been saying. They don't have a name and they need one. Jeff Jarrett said that they should be called losers since they don't win. Facts. He said he at least beat Jeff Hardy for a championship. Hysterical, by the way, that he's counting that. Um, And he's beat other people, whereas Jay Lethal has done nothing. Jarrett and Lethal stood off with Sanjay and Karen separating them. Satnam Singh was nowhere to be found. I say this without exaggeration. This was easily my favorite thing that this group has done since its inception. I love the idea of a loser faction acknowledging their status and looking within to change it. Plus, it was executed really well on all four of their parts. Somehow, after all this time and being on TV way too much, I finally care about this Jarrett storyline. Go frickin' figure. So if you thought coming in that just because I was criticizing Tony Khan that I wasn't gonna like AEW this week, clearly there's a lot more I liked this week than I do most weeks, including frickin' Jeff Jarrett's storyline. So how about that, right, folks? All right, look, this was a long show. We had a ton to cover. I appreciate all of you uh, sticking around for it. Allow me to hit you with some reminders on the way out. First of all, we have the 2023 Getting Over Awards, aka The Meaties, waiting for your ear holes. We published that on Monday. If you missed it, go into our podcast archive, take a listen to it. We also have our WWE episode from Tuesday. We will be back next week with another WWE episode on Tuesday. And right back here, same bat time, same bat channel with your next AEW NXT show on Thursday. Between now and then, here's what you can do. First, you can remember that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about Defy. And you can head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, leave a five-star rating on Apple. If you leave a five-star written review, we will read it live right here on the show. You can also remember... I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do too. $5 a month, 50 for the entire year. You can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up, you get bonus audio, exclusive news, and much more. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. And the last thing 
that you can do is visit us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for a few reasons. First, pinned to the top of our feed is a ballot for the Sports Podcast Awards. Getting Over is up for Best Wrestling Podcast. We would greatly appreciate your vote. It's awesome to do the show for free as we have been doing for all these years. It'd be great to get a little recognition and our first podcast award. Again, that is pinned to the top of our profile on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And if you follow us there, you'll get episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all that good stuff. You can also DM and tweet us questions and comments for the show. All right. That was a lot of talking for today. Silver King's going to rest his voice for a few days. We'll be back on Tuesday with that WWE episode, but I hope you all enjoyed what we delivered. It is officially time to wrap up the show. So with all that said, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.